1: Uh, Podsequentialism is uh, now in its its um, its transitional phase, where we'll no longer be recording at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles because Meltdown Comics and Collectibles is going away. And um, as a, a sort of independent podcast now, we'll see where we land. But uh, very much looking forward to what's ahead. and very excited about the roster of guests we've got going on. So I will say that we are brought to you by Gallery 30 South out in Pasadena, which is the gallery that I own and curate from, uh, featuring also the artwork of um, I. Kennedy, uh, her line Nohia and Insomnia, which is an incredible line of jewelry that uh, resides somewhere between future noir and uh, classical past. Uh, with uh, Architect's Eye and uh, really unique design, and also the Panic Collective, that's Panic with a K, and uh, in this particular episode, by New Texture. And uh, we're going to be talking about New Texture with uh, Wyatt Doyle, who is the, the man behind that that independent book imprint, uh, someone I've known for a very long time, incredibly gifted writer, uh, incredibly gifted editor, uh, raconteur and man about town. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Wyatt. Thank
0: you, Matt. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, and congratulations on that. Uh on the, the long duration and, and now to, to newer and possibly greener pastures. It's a very exciting time.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny because before we before we even started recording and we were catching up a little bit, you know, we started talking about how, how the models have changed, and we will definitely go deeply into that. But even on a, on a podcast, even on a podcast network, it's, it's interesting mm-hmm. to see how it can be more beneficial to a podcaster to be independent because of the fact that, you know, you're not sharing any kind of revenue stream. That, um that even with a smaller output you can get a greater a greater gain and I think that's been the model for most of the arts over the past 10 or 12 years but um well, oh sorry go ahead
0: I mean you well you and me I mean because we have so many common points of interest I think that to some extent um, we're both always optimistic about whatever group of Friends, so to speak, that we fall in with, whether it's uh, record store people, or, or bookstore people, yeah. or, or video store people, mm-hmm. and uh, over time you just sort of start to to get, to get a clearer sense of of what the people who are really in it for the long haul and the people who are just kind of talking a talking a lot about it. And there, I mean, we uh, it's it's kind of like these disappointments that that I encountered in these various worlds were kind of the. <laughs> the the dueling scars you know as yeah. you move forward it's like oh i thought it was a lot more of a tight knit community but i didn't realize you know i was going to get burned on this or that their concerns were over here so it's i don't know i think i think you're you're well prepared for these changes by just by dint of of being involved with so many of these subcultures to begin with
1: right right <laughs> from your mouth to the to the ears of the universe the um and this is funny because you know and we're going to we're going to dig back deep but um you know when We've known each other now, I think, for 25 years, or close to that. That sounds about right. 20, 23, 24, 25 years. And um, so when when we first met, you were working <laughs> at um, Mace Newfeld Productions.
0: Yeah, I was. I was at Paramount, I was at Paramount Pictures. Um, I had moved out to – I was born and raised in Philadelphia. I worked for um, just about all the major newspapers around here. Um, before I moved out to Los Angeles and I was interested in the movie business. And, um, I got a job initially as a freelance script reader, which I don't even know how, how often they're used today where the, the spec spec script market is not anywhere near what it was then.
1: Oh yeah. It's, it's like you know, percentage.
0: Was, yeah. So, I mean, I don't even know if there's that much spec material that's, that's floating around compared to when I was behind a desk, but it was, um, Essentially, my job was to write book reports. I mean, for people who don't know what readers are, they're people who write book reports for producers or production companies. But any place where the where the person in charge doesn't feel like re- actually reading the material that's submitted to them, they farm it out to their staff readers, who then um, write book reports and and basically recommend a, a course forward, whether to. Pursue the material or let it go. Ninety-nine point nine percent, you're letting the material go because it's not not particularly good.
1: Right, and then of course they uh, they call that coverage writing coverage in the, um, coverage. In the business. Yeah,
0: and it's I, I tell you what, I'll, I'll I'll say this just as my my guide to coverage was um, Danny Perry's Colton movies books because of the way that in those books he would outline sort of a, a very clinical. Description of the of the film's plot in the front. That sort of taught me how to write clinically about movies, I guess, or write clinically about scripts. So yeah, you can never never throw away your copies of cult movies one, two, or three.
1: Wow, yeah, and then there's the things like the Psychotronic Encyclopedia of of film and. And um, in my particular instance, uh, even though they were often filled with inconsistencies, the, um, the Tom Weiser books on on Asian cult cinema and, and, and Asian cult film, which um, another place where we would end up kind of working together. And, and, and because of you, actually, I think that um, that you had been writing for Tom, you had a column, you were a columnist, and I ended up writing um, a lot of independent reviews and mm-hmm. and would just submit. But there was kind of no rhyme, or reason to what was getting covered and when. And so, if I had a scoop on something like I had, I could have gotten the very first press for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, into his Asian Cult mm-hmm. cinema, and for some reason, he just passed on it. But um,
0: I remember it was it was
1: a trip. I mean, uh,
0: with both of us on the magazine it was a real trip. It was it was far too short lived uh, time. It was, yeah. it was only like a couple of years. But but no, that was a great. I I I I feel like I owe him a lot. I owe the magazine a lot. Um, he definitely just sort of took an interest. We, we, we were, he and I were in touch, uh, just sort of loosely in touch. And then, um, we got to know each other a little better through, through phone calls. And then he just said, look, you're, you know, you're working at a major studio, you're evaluating material every day. Um, you obviously know your, know films, you know, he, he enjoyed our conversation. He said, you should be writing a column for the magazine. Yeah. I said, okay, (laughs) I'll take it. And, um, and yeah, just I mean, you were just such a natural fit because that was you and I had bonded over film and, and especially the a lot of the film that was coming out of Hong Kong at the time and then later into the Korean stuff. But um, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun working with him. And I think he I think he enjoyed the fact that he had somebody on the magazine who who had bona fides. I mean, such as yeah. they were. I was working at a pretty major production company. Um, it was Mace Newfeld and Bob Ramey's company. At the time that they were uh, had a huge success with *Clear and Present Danger*. Right. And so I kind of landed right in a in a honeypot there because everybody if you wanted to do big intelligent action movies, those were the guys that people wanted to be in business with. So we had a I had a, a lot of access and a lot of opportunity, which was great. And I think um, I think Tom at ACC sort of recognized that and 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 capitalized that to some extent. I mean, it helped. It certainly helped me. Yeah. More than it helped him.
1: Yeah, for sure, and then and although I don't know, maybe I disagree with that. I think that um, that there was a certain amount of on the on the ground um, experience that came with having you on the magazine. I mean, number one. You're an incredibly gifted writer, and so your column was great. And when you're talking about some of the other people that had columns, I mean, you had Max Allen, Max Allen Collins, who was you know a, a, noteworthy, a noteworthy writer at the time, mainly out of comic books, and um, and you know Oliver Stone was occasionally doing um, a column here and there. Uh-huh. That it really did need the consistency of somebody who was grounded in hollywood you know all these other writers are other places you know often in the midwest and you know writing about film and and they obviously had a passion for it but in other markets they weren't getting the films that we were getting here certainly these people weren't going to the film markets i I never bumped into any other writers from acc at the um at the film markets and so Mm -hmm. and when i'd go to these festivals and i had you know, carte blanche to meet people because I was licensing films also at, at that time or beginning to start to license films that mm-hmm, you'd sure. get offered all these materials. So you had all the advanced materials long before the films had found distribution. And for a publication that was so niche and that was dedicated to, um, you know, a certain area, as large of an area as it could be, it was still very niche within the overall industry and in and, and, and film fan type of, of publications that the ability to rise above by getting access to this stuff had to have been in some way connected to, you know, what material the writers could turn in and I remember that um, there was a couple of kerfuffles at a certain point about um, editorial um, adjustments to, to things that that took things from being grammatically correct to grammatically incorrect a couple of times, which oh, was... Oh man, there was... <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm not... I, I've... <laughs> I'll take the fifth. I'll take the fifth. I'll of with that. But I mean, but you know, the thing that this that, that this brings up is, is is kind of an old song. Um, it's just how much the, the internet has changed the way we do everything. I mean, yeah. part part of even just part of ha- having an inside track at that time was having access to the trades every day, which yeah. you know the average person didn't necessarily have or have, a, have wouldn't be of interest to them. So just to have somebody who's reading the trades every day and scouring them and finding these little tidbits of information that were that might have been buried somewhere in Variety or in the Hollywood Reporter, and all of a sudden it's the kind of thing that would really make for a, a, a very appealing uh, a element to build a column around that yeah. that people in the you know in the hinterland, so to speak, weren't really con- excuse me connecting with, which is. I, it's so completely changed now, I just can't even imagine. I mean, i I miss I miss that 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 sort of um, I miss it that we used to have some greater pauses between huge dumps of data.
1: It's yeah, kind
0: of made it possible to stay on top of anything that you're really passionate about before we used to be able to kind of have some kind of reign over our interests, you know, where it's like, well, i'll I'll go. I mean, just stuff that the fact that we would be going to, you know, trudging, uh, for me, it would be trudging out to like LA's Chinatown to the video stores there and, and just picking through the stuff. I mean, which is just the, all those, all those experiences, I wouldn't trade for the world. You know, yeah. you, you really felt like such a detective and, and such a, you know, like you were on a mission to, because you had a readership who needed to know about this stuff, who might yeah. not have a Chinatown in their neighborhood or have access to the, whatever was coming in from the Hong Kong, um, Film scene, and um, I don't know. I mean, to some extent, you feel a certain responsibility as 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 the journalist to get out there and do the do the legwork. But now it's it's so completely different. I mean, I don't even know what it would take to stay ahead of the the news curve in print today.
1: Yeah, I mean, you look at the at the landscape now of of genre movie publications, and it's just less and less and less. I mean, you know, Tim put Video Watchdog to bed, you know, last year. Um, he's still writing okay. incredible stuff. He's doing a lot of his essays now as commentary on, on DVDs um, and not mm-hmm. having to carry the, the incredible overhead of, of a publication. And, you know, the books that he he put out, you know, that were 10, 12 years of work each. You know, you talk about Bava and you talk about Fulci. and. And just the incredible amount of research that he puts in, and then people like Steve Bissett, who's still independently publishing, um, you know, books on specific areas of study within genre. That you know, those guys are gone. ACC is gone. Um, you know, obviously, video. Um, well, yeah, Tim's Video Watchdog, but then there was also, uh, you know, Chris Gore's publication, which was so kind of pivotal and important in the early '90s. You know when when he was when he was publishing and they were even oh, the licensing film Threat, the early film Yeah, Threat. yeah, and Film Threat were yeah, the yeah. company that licensed the documentaries Chicken Hawk. Um, yep. And then I think they got a little bit co opted by putting so much support behind that movie SFW. But um, he was trying to find a way to transition from a guy that covered films to being involved in the film industry. And you know, Crystal is not too far from me in Pasadena, and I see him every once in a while. And he's a good dude. You know, and mm-hmm. and you want to wish well to the people that kind of. Blazed the path, so to speak, but there's so little entry point now, like you say, because you know Harry Knowles and his site really kind of became that one entry point for all things. As soon as you know the the internet became as magnificent as large and um, and it was as easy well, to access things.
0: I mean, I would say. Oh I yeah, mean, definitely got to know, Yeah, to, yeah. I'm not trying to take shots at, at, at Harry Knowles or anything cool, but I mean, like the stuff. The stuff that 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 was more headline grabbing then was the stuff that was so was not really interesting to me. It was real fanboyish kind of stuff, and yeah. it wasn't really. When you look at stuff like coming out of out of you know, let's just say a decade, a decade or more of reading magazines like Psychotronic Video, Video Watchdog. Yeah. Uh, um, Ezoid Express, if you were, if you were, and Metasex, if you were yeah. lucky enough to be able to, to procure copies of those. Yeah. I mean, to go from that into the sort of ain't it cool world where it was really focused on, there was so much interest and fascination with mainstream sequels, and it, it was really a little bit um, disconcerting. It was almost like feeling like the uh, um, like the kindergarten had kind of taken over. It was like, oh, wait, you, you people are still interested in this shit? Like, where the hell? The rest of us are kind of past a lot of this now or are or, or, or interested in deeper le- levels of it. Um, and that's still that's still a big problem I have with with a lot of the film focused film culture.
1: It all became Entertainment Weekly.
0: Yeah. And who, who wants to be Entertainment Weekly
1: I know. Ever? <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know. Look, I just remember. Okay, so so you and I met uh, via the Goblin Market, the amazing video store on Melrose that um, our friend Donnie Gillespie had for for a few years, nice. and that was a store where that there's just the whole experience of it was such a big. thing. Mean, I guess uh, record fans can at least point to high fidelity and say, you know, yeah. "This is what it was like." You used to be able. But video store guys, really, I don't, I don't think the clerks' movies really do it justice at all. But there's just the the, vid, the whole video store culture, the idea that you'd go in there and it wasn't. I mean, especially a store like Goblin Market, which attracted everybody who was interested in that kind of stuff. Friends yeah, the, the regulars
1: were Guillermo del Toro. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, you'd have uh, Rob Zombie was in there all the time. Um, you know, Elfman, I met. Yeah, Elf, um, I, just about anybody who was really, really fascinated with with genre film, regardless of whether they were making it or not. You know, Carp- mm-hmm. John Carpenter would come in. Sam Raimi would come in, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, the same kind of people that were that were coming into Hollywood Book and Poster, you know, would, would be coming into Goblin mm-hmm. Market. And I remember when I first walked in, I was just impressed that he had the Japanese laser disc on the Amuse label of El Topo. And, and I was like, oh, I was like, this is a video store worth their salt, you know, and, and you, know, you talked about going out to the San Gabriel Valley and stuff. I was flying up to Scarecrow Video in Seattle, bringing my uh-huh. Laserdisc player and VCR with me in my luggage and just cranking out copy after copy of stuff that they had, you know, that nobody else had. And then when I got my network large enough where I was um, getting access to, you know, the original sources on stuff from Japan and from Europe, um, it was, you know, we were all doing a a healthy amount of bootlegging ourselves, I think. I've (laughs) I've always said I come from a long line of pirates and, uh, you know, some of them running rum, some of them running VHS cassettes. But that, um, you know, that I was definitely out there searching all of the, the video stores for tapes for Donnie, you know, to, to be able to add to his collection that I wanted to, to bring in stuff that, that people maybe were asking Mm -hmm. about or help fill out the Just Franco collection. And, you know, as a result of that, I ended up working for like Leisure Time Entertainment because they were the number one (laughs) aggregator of, of video stores. But yeah. Well then,
0: you know, I don't know if I ever told you this, but, but when I first, the first time I stuck my head into the Goblin Market, I could see. I mean, so so the Goblin Market was a was a, there was, it was part of a larger storefront on Melrose Avenue in in Hollywood
1: called the Black and, Market. Um, yeah,
0: yes, the Black Market, and so everybody in the Black Market in that space had stalls, the sort of store stall set up, and uh, Donny's Goblin Market was way in the back and. Well, actually, it was in the front, and then it was in the back.
1: And then it moved back to the but, front again, yeah. Because <laughs> you took over Nancy's space when Nancy started Necromance uh, over there before right. she went independent.
0: Well, the first time I, I noticed the place, because I lived right around the corner, and I noticed that they had that this was some kind of bizarre setup, and they had a, a poster for Godzilla. The, it was a New World poster for Godzilla 1985. Yep. And I remember seeing that in the window and thinking, like, Oh, this is just some kind of garage sale thing. Like, let me go in and see how see how much I can, how how much it's going to take me to pry this loose from this rube. You know, he probably doesn't <laughs> even know what he has. Right. And then you walk in there, and it's like, oh, please, Godzilla 1985 poster in the window. That is like, <laughs> it's like the um, uh, one peep one piece, one whole pe- is for amateurs.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> like, well, like, yeah, the smut, thin, but... the smut peddler, coming <laughs> attraction. Yeah. Uh, Key holders for amateurs.
0: But I mean that was a real haven, and it wasn't like it. It was great to meet these people, and and to suddenly be introduced to the person you've just been talking to, and realize, oh, this is somebody whose films I really like. Yeah, and realize it. But I mean, that whole experience, which I I know there is a there is a kind of social experience, obviously that, that that one gets from from the internet and from social media or whatever. But it's just not the same as just feeling like, I mean, just going in there and just losing a few hours. Yeah. You know, just, just browsing the shelves, making small talk, you know, flipping through the, the CD. Just a completely different level of experience.
1: I mean, That's his shop I, was I, really yeah. more like a salon, you know, than just a video store. And, you know, the like you say, those types of interactions. And certainly I was, at that point, um, mainly acting. I had, I had um, just left... My original tenure at La Luz de Jesus Gallery on Melrose because I was uh-huh. doing too much acting. And so my night job was a bartender at um, you know Control Factory and Helter Skelter and Stigmata and all these – um, you know, kind of goth industrial nightclubs that were all over on, on Highland, but my whole life was in that big circle, so I ended up, I'd just spend the day with Donnie, you know, and at around mm-hmm. five or six o'clock, I'd go to the the store and buy a six-pack, a Ching Tao, and would kick back and and, <laughs> and watch whatever crazy movie we were going to watch, and, and he was bringing in weird music, and devil doll CDs and, and just like, it, it was paradise for us, you know, like cause I
0: completely forgot about all the devil dolls. Sure. He was the, he was the only guy in the U S was that it? Yeah. He, was able to sell Devil Doll
1: stuff? Yeah, yeah, this Hungarian count or whatever who had decided that he was going to have, have a goth, a one-man goth band, and Donnie some, somehow finds this guy and brings in the CDs, and you've got, like, this weird cabal of Devil Doll fans in, in Los Angeles. <laughs> um, and and then later, I, th- I think he ended up getting covered in Propaganda Magazine, which was kind of like the goth magazine du jour. And, sure. um And, you know, when when there was, there was still money to be made in publishing. But yeah, I mean, the, the and I was the only guy that could give Donnie a day off, you know, like he was, because, that, because of where he was located, that business was open seven days a week, so he couldn't just easily take a day off and close down because there would be people walking through his store. So um, I was able to give him a day off by being his Sunday employee, you know, and being someone who had like seven jobs like me, and, and I guess I was young enough to be able to still do that. But, um, yeah, yeah. What a, what a great crew of people. Now, before we get into how this translates into you starting New Texture, we're going to uh, stop and, mm-hmm. and take a word from one of our sponsors. Um want to remind our listenership that you, too, can reach this prime demographic. Give us a call. Send me an email at info at and uh, I'll get you some ad rates and that type of thing. But uh, we'll be back in 30 or 60 seconds with the great Wyatt Doyle. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host Matt Kennedy. Uh, we have with us today Wyatt Doyle, who is the publisher of New Texture and um, has a, just a fascinating history in 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 publishing and in writing and in Hollywood. And we were talking about how you know for. For such a long time, why it was our man on the inside, you know, that he was the guy that actually worked for a major studio, who were having um, incredibly successful films, movies that were making over a hundred million dollars in the box office, and um, and because he was one of the coverage writers, he had access to to this information that a lot of us didn't have at the time about what was trending in Hollywood, what movies were being um, optioned, and and the types of stars that were showing up, uh, showing their faces around the studios. And we're also talking about how there's a certain amount of, of dissatisfaction in seeing how what we were loving was becoming co-opted, that the, the early days of, of the real big boom of the internet, so post-98, we'll say, 95, post-98, that it really changed the way we were receiving information and it kind of dumbed down the fandom a bit by um, spreading that pool a little bit too thin. And so out of this and because you had so much experience in writing coverage and you had written columns for film magazines and prior to that you'd been working in newspapers in Philly that uh, you had like a really, you know, great set of chops of act, uh, of writing chops. And you had been – and you were also somebody that the entire time you are in Los Angeles, I don't think you had a driver's license.
0: That's true. <laughs> no. No, I was always on, on... – uh, foot and bicycle and bus, pretty much. And of course, um, the
1: bus is an incredible resource for hearing people's stories.
0: Yeah, and especially in Los Angeles, where you're, um, if you're not on the bus, you're you're kind of cut off from a significant portion of your fellow citizenry. Yeah, I mean, you don't you're you're plugged into. We're all pretty. Everybody in Los Angeles is is, is pretty plugged into. um their goals, their, their professional goals, their personal goals, as it is. So People tend to be either super flaky or super focused, in my experience. And um, the bus is a place where you could actually, I, I found I was I was able to kind of stay. Now, I come from Philadelphia, which has an amazing public transportation system and, mm-hmm. and, and has as long as I've been alive. So it wasn't that unusual for me. I didn't really view it as a status, as a bump in status or anything like that um, to have to be taking the bus or public transportation at all. But as it it became a point of pride for me because I, um, started to realize, Hey, wait a minute, I'm getting these different perspectives just from this, the the crazy people and the small talk and the the chit chat, you end up getting, picking up a lot more insight into, um, the guy next door than you do in, in a more sort of isolated, um, Bubble that a lot of us uh, live in in Los
1: Angeles, but then also you know, the, like- the roots of those buses would carry you through twelve different neighborhoods. Like um to, to get around yeah. it, it wasn't just that you know you're, you're like you say that there's a lot of people, especially in Los Angeles, you know there's the very famously the um the missing person song, nobody walks in L.A. and um mm-hmm. you know and there, there's some evidence you know to support that as a, a guy who, <laughs> who had a uh, worked in a gallery that was just a couple blocks too far from where other galleries were uh, when the um when the system over in Culver City started to build up around Billy Shire Fine Arts, but that um. Mm-hmm. You know, that when you're traveling in, in a circular bus system, which has to cover a lot of ground, um, even to go, you know, from a movie downtown, say, to um, another screening perhaps in Beverly Hills or even on Sunset, that that bus line is going to take you through the heart of the city. And so you're going through a lot of different types of neighborhoods and a lot of different social, um, we'll say economic um Pockets, so that um, certainly someone who is a businessman who lost his license to a DUI is uh, riding the bus next to somebody who is unemployed and and uh, looking for uh, job placement at a at a specific. um, employment office, next to the single mom, next to, you know, um, kids on the, taking their, the bus back from school because the, um, the classes or the sports program that they're attending is not near the place that they live in. So you do have so many different types of people. Um, next to each other and juxtaposed. And then you have what I think most people think of when they think of public bus system. You have the occasional crazy person. But if you're mm-hmm. a regular rider and if you sit near the front, you can strike up great conversations with the bus drivers. And so I know that you really got to know a lot of bus drivers um, riding the bus, and that helped inform your book, um, Stop Requested.
0: Yeah, you're right. I mean, look, just to put it as bluntly as we can put it, The average sort of if you're if you're a a white guy and you're you've got a a job that's keeping a roof over your head or better. um, What opportunities are you even going to have in your in your day to day life to have any kind of real conversation with, say, um, you know, the Salvadoran cleaning woman? who's going to clean uh, somebody's house in Beverly Hills every morning. I mean, right. it's like, where, are you going to have that conversation with somebody? I don't, you're, you're just not. I mean, if you're dealing with with people in, a, in a, of a different economic uh, situation than you're in or, 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 or a different culture, it's like it, we're not generally, especially in big cities like Los Angeles, you're not generally that open to, to having conversations with people to getting to know the stranger next to you. I mean, most of us, would much prefer to just get through the day with as little, uh, hang up as possible from, from people we don't know. But, Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of beauty and there's a lot of truth and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of insight to be had from just listening to what on the surface might not seem to make much sense at all. And then with a little time and and some consideration that you might really stumble on some, some useful truths. And so out of that, out of those trips, I, I put together a book called stop requested, um, which is, has become a, a, a bit of a of a of a cult cult book, which I'm always I'm o i am always i still I still hear about it. People reach out to me about it and tell me they like it. I'll still get reviews, pop up. But um yeah, that was a big part of that. It was a big it's just the idea of saying like, look, you're in this you, if you're in Los Angeles, if you're in any kind of city, you it's you're in a you have tremendous access to different people's stories and different people's ways of, of living and, and how people are getting by. And it really makes it a lot easier to to sort of recognize your brother in, in each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a lot of the problems, I mean, uh, for me, I, I look at so many of the problems that affect us socially, and it all seems to spin back to a, a lack of empathy or, 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 or a poorly developed sense of empathy. Right. And I think that... Um, So yeah, I think that I think that that by being out there in the world, by whether it's circumstance or fate that kind of puts you on the bus or or whatever your bus is, you know, you gotta you gotta capitalize on it. You gotta take full advantage of it of the situation and not treat it like it's a like it's a cross to bear.
1: Right, right.
0: You're actually getting you're getting a real gift in the end. You know.
1: Now, how Um, long did it take? Before, because you had you had been making these notes for years, and um, and at some point you had met Stanley Zappa, and um, and his illustrations to the book are fabulous, and, and the cover is very simple pictogram of a hand pulling down on, you know, the the wire that signals the stop on the bus, um, and. I'm not even sure if that's the way the buses <laughs> uh, that most buses have now. I think you just push a button now, but the um that, that was certainly the way that you requested a stop uh in the uh-huh. 90s well into the 2000s. That um but there were a number of people that you had been talking to about possibly publishing their books. When when did this really start to formulate into you know what? I've I've realized that we can do a, an imprint um, that I don't have to go too okay. far out of pocket for printing because we can do print on demand but that um, you know as a as an editor and you would started to learn I believe in design to be able to lay out the books that um, that it's not without its own infrastructure but because you had so much experience in writing coverage and in editing that you were sort of perfect to be the person to do this what was it that that really just pushed you into the I'm doing this
0: just having the opportunity, I guess, is is what motivated me to do it. Um, I was working at a job where I, w- I was basically uh, I was a copywriter for an ISP, for an internet service provider, mm-hmm. and I was just the in-house writer. When they needed copy, they came to me and said, "Hey, I need you to write this website. I need you to write that website." I mean, uh, everything from from uh, real estate to you know naked pictures. It was like if it needed copy, I was in there writing a copy. Right and. Uh, bunch of the guys I worked with, I was a complete novice on the internet. This would, been, this would be the late uh, late 90s, early 2000s. I was still very much a novice. I had an email. That was about it. Mm-hmm. And all these guys kept saying, man, you should really have a blog. You should have a blog. And I said, I have no idea how to set up a blog. Well, I worked with a bunch of computer guys. And I mean, soon setting up a blog would be nothing for anybody to do. But at the time, it was still a bit of a hurdle. And fortunately, I had smart smart people who were eager to help. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I just had this notion. I mean, you and I have talked about this dozens of times. We know a lot of talented people, mm-hmm. but today it's not enough to have talent. You have to have that hustle. Drive, have,
1: yeah, you have, have to have drive.
0: Right? I mean, you've got to get out there. and, and you, it's it, Before, I think people had this notion. It's like, well, I'll write my book or I'll write my movie or I'll record my album or, or whatever the art is, and I'll put it out there, and then people will just find it. Or I'll have the support of my label or my uh, publisher or my studio, and they'll find an audience for me. And it's debatable whether that ever really worked. But I mean, it certainly for a time it was how things worked. Um, That's not really how things work at all anymore. Um, You have to. It's not enough to just be an artist to just be someone with something to say. You have to be able to have the sort of patience and determinism of a, of a salesperson, which is that not every artist has that in them. Um, So I just had this notion of, look, let's have this, I've got this website, I've got this, this blog, let's turn it into a salon. Let's, let's, let's publish work by people who I think are doing interesting stuff and who either don't have the, the, the interest or the ability to go out there and kind of hustle their own stuff um, in the way it needs. So first it started off as an online salon and we'd run, run photography and music and, and shorter pieces and short stories and commentary, commentary. And then once I started hearing about, um, the print on demand options, which were that just started, Lulu.com was the big one at the time. Mm-hmm. They're still around. I started looking at that and I said, look, if we can put this thing together to where we can have our own imprint that we control an artist controlled imprint, um, that's not going to cost us much money to do because with print on demand, your costs are very low. Mm-hmm. Um, if the main thing, if it was, if it was sweat equity is that if that's what was needed, then I would figure out and, and I had access I was working in a computer place. I was I had access to coders and designers. I was able to pick their brains on, you know, how would I do this and how can I do that? And, um, I like the idea of everybody of having a group of talented people and, and having strength in numbers. I like the idea that it meant that my readers plus your readers equals even more readers for both of us. Right. Um, this is all stuff that I was really drawn to. I mean, I, I love the sense of, you know, like we talked about in the beginning about the, the, the sense of community that, that springs up around different artistic and creative pursuits. Mm-hmm. I love that. I can't get enough of it. It never lasts. It's very hard to hold on to, even at its best. I'm sure you can always point to lots of like, well, but this wasn't so perfect and this was kind of crappy. Or, um, But I like the idea of getting this work out there, and um, it's been an amazing ride. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm ridiculously proud of all the work we've got in print, the idea being – Look, we put it out ourselves. We do something that's extremely friendly to the artist, to the creator, where they get the majority of the money. In other words, we do the opposite of a, of the, of a traditional structure.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Where the idea is, I'm not out there to make money off of... I, I published Josh Allen Friedman's books. So I have his, his uh, book, Black Cracker. I love and that book, book. Tell the truth. It's one of my favorite
1: uh, books of all time.
0: Unbelievable books. And and his albums, his most recent album, 60, goddammit, because he's a musician as well. Mm-hmm. And... My deal is I'm not looking to make money off Josh Allen Friedman's book. I'm looking to make sure that book is out there, make sure that if people are just hearing about Black Cracker now, that it's out there, that when they buy it, that the profits will benefit the creator first and foremost. And I, I just thought, well, if, if, since, if I'm not looking to make money off other people, then maybe it's got a chance of surviving because mm-hmm. then everybody can kind of focus on their own stuff and I'll I'll count I'm willing to bet on my own abilities and my own work to cover my rent. Right. Is kind of how I see it. And I think that I benefit in the in a myriad other ways from the association with these other writers on the imprint. And I think they would I hope they would say the same. Yeah. Uh, um but the idea is it's extremely unconventional way of doing things. All the artists retain all rights to their work. Um, they're not signing anything over to me or to New Text or to any other entity. I mean, we're all we're all in it together because we like each other's work or we like the direction the thing is pulling in. So, yeah, that's and now we've you know I've mentioned music. We've done music now. We've done we've done almost thirty almost thirty books. Wow. And uh, nine nine CDs. I'm really I'm terrible with numbers, so it's like not it going to come to years <laughs> or numbers. But you know the the idea is trying to and, and I try to I am the ringmaster of the whole thing. So I try to look for commonalities in the work. It's not like we don't we don't accept submissions. It's more when I find work that I that I really like, I want to get it out there. Because it's a, it's a huge chunk of my life. I design and edit most of the books. Yeah. And so before I'm going to dive in on something, I have to ask myself, is this something that I'm really excited about spending possibly the next year? of my life working on that doesn't necessarily benefit me directly. Right. You know, so it, that makes it a little easier to be a, a, a tough nosed editor about stuff yeah. or to pass off Cause, opportunities. Cause that
1: can become, that can become the, the endless, I mean, you talk about sweat equity. It's like when you're, when you're doing multiple passes as an editor for an author who just can't narrow down what they need to do or isn't taking notes well, or doesn't want to hit a page count. Um, then you can you can easily spend way too much of your time on that book, and I remember um, okay. early on in the process, um, when you would you've been reading one of one of my blogs, which um, wound up being most of the meat and potatoes for the for the Panic Diaries. That you're like, oh, you know, this something here. If if you can expand this, you know, you, I'll publish this. And I couldn't expand it. And so I Mm -hmm. wanted to be really, you know, really honest about the ability of not having to keep hitting you with um, with editorial stuff and really wanting to um, to to work with that. And then I realized there's certainly not enough for a book in here, but there's definitely enough for zines. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think originally I had been planning on on um, licensing Frances Bean Cobain's drawings that we had done on her first show back when she was 17 at, um, at La Luz de Jesus when I gave her her first show and she didn't want to license it and I was like, oh, that that completely changes what the approach is going to be um, and, yeah. and I had seen the wonderful work that Stanley had done with you and I don't know that um, Stop Requested had been out yet, but you had shown me something and I found uh, Brie Clausen uh, then Brie Hranick and, and said can you do these pictogram mm-hmm. drawings because this would make it more zine-like and less book-like and then, if we were to bind it, if they were, to, if we were to reach a point where we had, you know, 150, 200 pages, then, then that would be perfect. And, um, and then just the idea of like when you're writing about real events, you know, it's it's great if you want to include your own name in it, but it's it's you got to be kind of fair about what you say about other people. And, and so that became a concern for me too. And I wanted to tell the truth, sure. but I didn't want to tell a brutal truth. And I wanted to make sure that, that if anybody was going to be maligned by it, that it was going to be me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but your, your, your help and your ability and, and encouragement in getting me to do, I never would have done it. It, it, it never would have gotten published if, if I hadn't um, been speaking with you about it. And I think honestly, no,
0: I think the way- too is ultimately. I mean, it's like it's one of those things where where the, the then the form because then then it's the, when the format is kind of like the zine format. It has that look of of almost like uh, like leaflets that would be that would be thrown out of a, out of a plane over a, <laughs> yeah. some Central American dictatorship. I mean, it's like you get all these great sort of yep. <laughs> associations. Those religious
1: pamphlets of the, from the nineteen seventies. <laughs> But it was such really encouraging. And I mean, I I had been working, I think by the time we were talking about that, I was, I was working at, um, at La Luz de Jesus. Again, I, I returned as the director and you know, the, 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 the the blog itself had been years old at that point that it was written while Mm -hmm. I was running panic house in, uh, in Chicago. And, and talks about, you know, kind of a full mental collapse in uh, in my early thirties of of just finding myself not at all where I thought I would be. And realized that there really weren't a lot of books about that. You know, that there wasn't a lot of stories about people at that age realizing that things aren't as they should be, you know, that you get a lot of, of books about people in their 20s and that kind of coming of age and making it to college, and then you have a lot of books about people in their 50s and 60s and, um, you know, the kind of twilight of our years, but that, the, that kind of really honest and kind of, you know, what's-in-all examination of, of, of life in the mid-30s was something that there wasn't a lot of, of out there. But then I realized, too, that it's not like I have a really normal life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's not. I, yeah. I'm not sure how many people could actually identify with it because it's just so strange and 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 so um, bizarre. You know, with, with one foot in entertainment and one foot in the arts, and and um, you know, just uh, having traveled the world and, and just some of the kind of people that we would bump up against that that becomes a factor. And what I love about the authors that you've worked with, and some of whom I know, and some of whom I was completely unfamiliar with when you were publishing them. Is that there's so many different perspectives, but there's a real kind of sense of everymanness to most of it. You know, I I don't know that we mm-hmm. could we could assign that to necessarily Christie. I don't think that there's a a big everymanness to Christie's experience. I think that he's operating from a kind of punk rock poet um, perspective. But certainly with um, with Friedman, you know, it's that he's just got this really conversational ability to tell um, autobiographical stories that are fascinating and that you learn a little bit from, but that they still you connect on a human level. Um, certainly, the way that you write is this amazing kind of I mean, it's almost like uh, um, newspaper reporting, but in a much more conversational way. And I think it's because you learn to write in that amazing – I mean, anybody who wants to be a writer, if you can, before you sit down and write a book, spend a year in a newsroom and, and have uh, mm-hmm. you know a, a copy editor to go through in red pencil – you know, ninety percent of what you've just written down to its 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 bare core, they have just done you the greatest favor that anybody can ever do you in your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, to kill the run on sentence, to make things concise, to get just the 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 true, the the nuggets of information across without too much flourish. That that's perfect, and it's so easy to read. Um, you know, I, my both my my, my ex wife and my current wife. Um, have both read your book and really love it. You know that they felt that it was informative and easy to read, and um, you know both speaking English as a second language, just loving the storytelling, and you know that mm-hmm. they both met you and and are like oh it's it's so great that that there's this person that we know that we've met that can write so well, that um you know that then being the person who is bringing together this this collection of people who are otherwise um. Not necessarily aligned, and I remember you—you've you, done a couple of live events, and I've—I've I've participated in one of the live events where you brought Absolutely. like the whole roster out to stage. You know, people were actually buying and buying tickets and paying to see people read from their books, and there was a little bit of you music. You
0: Georgina Spelvin out for the night.
1: I remember that. Yeah, it was—it was incredible.
0: Yeah. No, I mean that's look. It's what it comes down to is. <clears throat> it's just about being really committed to the stuff that you're passionate about. I mean, that's been a, a driving force for both of us through all these various aspects of our, of our lives and careers. And I think that the key thing is to to just to get out and do it and, and, and get it done and stop talking about it. I mean, like you and me, we, we both came out of the, the, Early '80s, mid '80s, punk rock thing too, and so DIY and, and zines. These things were all just uh, these were our modes of expression. These were our influences. These were our our um, our standard bearers. And I think that 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 sort of thing has continued now. Where it, that's when when I fell in love with the print on demand process. I said, well, this is this is like having my own copy machine. That that that's not a, it's a color copier. It's a magnificent copier. I mean, you could do all this stuff. That you couldn't do in the zines, but Mm -hmm. by putting in about the same amount of work and the same amount of dedication, you get a much more professional looking product. I don't have a problem with products looking raw or something being unpolished at all, but my goal is I want our books and our music, our releases, I think stand toe to toe with any major publishers' stuff. We might not have the same, uh, we might not publish as many books in one in a single year. But I mean, book by book, I think our stuff is really strong. And part of that has been, I mean, I'm committed to that. I'm committed to the books being really professional, them being professionally edited to them being really attractive to them, having all the I's dotted and T's crossed in terms of a a physical presentation of the book and that the the quality of the material be strong, but Mm -hmm. that sort of every man thing that you talk about. I mean, I, I, these are the things I find more interesting at this point in my life. I do find that the everyday stories to be more than every day. Yep. I find that people's smaller stories have a lot of resonance and relevance in my life. And I think that's kind of like, I definitely have heavily influenced by like Harvey P mm-hmm. somebody like that was a big, who initially I was like, well, what are these stories? I, the way I tend to come to stuff is by becoming sort of frustrated by it initially, and then just determined to figure it out somehow. And I remember reading early Harvey P. stuff in the '80s, and just thinking, like, I don't even understand. Like, these are these stories, are these these dialogues? Like, what are these? <laughs> these little playlets?
1: It was it was and a whole new type I, of thing, like, yeah. It's a different genre. It's like Lake yeah. Woe be gone becomes Lake Woe is me, and it was just incredible mm-hmm. and and so personal. And and I mean, it's easy to see how that kind of took over the focus of things like the Comics Journal. And I, I, I bag on the Comics Journal a lot because I think that they have a mm-hmm. massive chip on the shoulder against anything fantasy, against anything um, mm-hmm. certainly superhero. And I think that there is a lot of still great storytelling being being done in those realms. But they abandoned it hard because they just saw that there was a whole new way of doing things that hadn't existed before, and they just went full throttle into it. And I think to their detriment in that they put on blinders to anything else at that point except those types of stories, mm-hmm. but that they became such a big champion because you had – you know, Art Spiegelman's Maus, and you had Harvey Picard's American Splendor, and and you had, you know, the the stuff that would follow that just a few years later with, um, you know, Yummy Fur, and um, and certainly like Adrian uh, Tamini and, and Daniel Klaus, that there was this weird sort of um, line that went through the old Sunday funnies into like grove press and when i do see your books on shelves in other people's houses they are next to barney rossett's grove press books they are next to feral house books and they are next to you know these these really sort of very well respected uh imprints and it always makes me really really happy and, and I've, I've seen a couple of of New texture books um, in the houses of of relatively famous people, and, and on on the okay. shelf next to books that I think people consider standards, whether it's Catcher in the Rye, um, or or whether it's um, I Am Curious um, Yellow, that um, that it's it's just I love that I love that that people are recognizing the same thing in your imprint. That I think went into setting it up, you know, that we were certainly all book collectors, and um, mm-hmm. we certainly spent a lot of time in in a number of bookstores that are no longer around, and it's, right. and it's sad and it's depressing, and and even before I, I had um I moved, I I donated a huge portion of my science fiction collection to the Mystery and Imagination bookstore, um you mm-hmm. know to give them something to sell to try and stay in business, and and the rest I donated to the Philip K. Dick Library out in Orange County but um you know we used to see each other over there quite a bit and you know back when ray bradbury was alive and he would come down and and, mm-hmm. and he would you know hold court in that place and this beautiful my, my favorite bookstore of all time i think and then other yeah. places you know the places across town on the west side you know and and around the corner from the new art and just these wonderful places mm-hmm. that that allowed a um a not just brand new hipster um large imprint book signing presence but to take a chance on Really interesting, really important. Um, uh, sometimes prose, sometimes not. Uh, storytelling mechanic that that you had fostered this kind of school of in publishing um, a lot of just really contemporarily important uh, and exciting literature.
0: Thanks. I mean, I feel like look, it's it, it falls to all of us to do it because we're, we've we've lost all of the arts have lost or in the process of losing the the structures. That have supported them and supported the the participants, the artists themselves, um, for for decades now. Okay, we're losing we're losing all those things. Before there was a certain thing. If you sold a screenplay, you could basically if you sold a screenplay and didn't and stayed out of your own way and did the work, you could be assured of a a certain trajectory yeah same with if you had published a book that was well received you could expect a certain trajectory that was not not necessarily you know uh, boilerplate but you had a pretty good sense of where because the, the everything was uh, the the systems were in place and this is how the things work and that is really we we are uh, kind of came up in, a, in a, at a time when we got the last drops of that from the goblet but we've been kind of on our own ever since yeah <laughs> you know in a way it's worse right it's
1: like we've we've seen the big brass ring and then we saw it disappear into the sky and it's sort of like it feels like i wish i'd never (laughs) seen that you know i i just i'd just be able to work hard and hope for the best and not remember what it was like when it was still kind of you know really lush out here
0: but you know what it's like okay it's a constant struggle but it's a it's anything when you're trying to do it and you want you want to do things a certain way and you have you have um strong feelings about about your work and about how it's presented, you know, it's always going to be an uphill climb. So you might as well just embrace it and just um, embrace the camaraderie, embrace the work and um, and do what you can to learn as much as you can yeah. to to kind of get out of your own. Hey, man, it's hard. Selling yourself is hard. It's really hard. No matter how big an egomaniac uh, one might think they are, it's tough, man. It's tough to say, hey, buy my book. This is my book and it's good, you know, so yep. My hope with with new texture from the very beginning of of producing physical media, producing books, um, my goal was that that we would occupy a position in our readers' minds somewhere along the lines of like what a what a label like s s t
1: yep
0: what meant to me when I was um, you know kind of discovering a newer music, you know, just make sort of cementing my own taste in music, I'll say,
1: Yep. Husker um, do and whatnot, of course, yeah.
0: Well, you'd pull out the S- any any release from SST, and you'd have you know this Xerox thing that was just this massive list of here's all the SST stuff. And so, even though you'd never heard of ninety percent of it, it would still say, "Well, it's SST." I mean, I, I got this, this is SST, and I like this. And, and that, that was that
1: was Ray Pettibone's that. brother, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is amazing yeah. that I only discovered that within the last five or so years. I've known Ray for for decades. And um I didn't realize that you know that SST you know I know he'd, he'd done those those black flag album covers and stuff sure but that um a lot of the other design was was Ray's brother who was the owner of the label and you've got like from from that punk rock record label launches a career at Gagosian, you know 35 40 45 years later, which is sort of incredible mm-hmm. that that's now being recognized as as contemporary fine art in the same way that you know, generations earlier, it never could have been, even, even, you know, the idea that it's commercial art is making it more valuable, kind of takes that, you know, Basquiat thing to the next level, you know, because it's, it's, it's beyond Warhol, it's, yeah. it's something else.
0: And if, if anything, I mean, I, I think that it should be, it, it should be taken as as a great, um, as a very optimistic sign and just in terms of, of sticking to your, sticking to your guns in terms of, of, of putting the time in on the work and, um that eventually, I mean, we we all hope that eventually it'll pay off in some significant way that we can't see or understand or, but no, I think it's important to to stay focused on the work. I mean, I think, look, out in Los Angeles, it's like, we, we know it's, there, there are plenty of people who are really talented and there are plenty of people who are just talking shit. Yep. And I think the most important thing is be somebody who finishes the work, be somebody who makes your deadlines, be somebody who can be depended on. Um, because it's like, like they, uh, who is it says uh, the famous line about, you know, half of it is just showing up, you know what I mean? Just show up on time. You've got some there. I mean, you and I have dealt with so many flaky people in professionally and personally. It's like, we've seen so many people just trip themselves up and really, and um, it's
1: dangerous how contagious that can be that if you surround yourself with people who are flaky even if you are an achiever it will wear off on you it will wear down on you and you'll stop delivering on time and you'll stop being dependable and uh, you know it's 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 hard to explain to people if they haven't seen it happen that um that the wrong influence can be really really truly damaging to the point that you don't even realize it's damaged you until you can't come back from it and you have to mm-hmm. rebuild, and you have to regroup, and I have certainly been guilty of that. I mean, you know, here I have a, a podcast that is ostensibly about comics, and I have notebooks full of of plotted comic book um, material. Of course, mm-hmm. at this point, I'm not sure how relevant it would be, having been written in the 90s, but that I still haven't published a comic. You know, I've got a lot of talented artist friends, and sometimes they're the problem, and sometimes I'm the problem, but that, you know, you do have to shit or get off the pot at a certain point, that it's it's really... The more you talk about a project without putting the work into the project, the more you are just giving that to somebody else that's going to do it. And if you're not prepared for that to happen, if, if your only reason for giving up an idea is for the bragging rights and how you didn't make any money from it, then, um, mm-hmm. you, know, then you might want to rethink that structure. And you know that there, it is possible. One thing that I've I've addressed a lot with with guests is that it was always important to know somebody who had succeeded because you could see a way, you could see a path, and you can mm-hmm. ask them about their path. And if they're you know forthcoming and, and gregarious enough, they can tell you how they did it. And that doesn't mean that you can replicate it because success is often not um, a, a replicatable uh, format. If it was, everybody do the same thing. But um, that at least if you know it can be done, you know that putting in the work is worthwhile. And if you make mistakes along the way, then you'll learn from those mistakes as long as you keep focused. And in Los Angeles, it really is easy to just get high off of that sunshine, and um, and stop realizing what it is that that you've you've moved there to do. and And you can change that venue. You can say the same of New York. You can say the same of San Francisco. You can say the same of Seattle, minus the sunlight. But um, that you know that regardless of what brings you to the area that you're going to be in. Please maximize your resources in that area to do what it is that you wanted to do when you went there. If you, if you go and you try and you fail, there's no shame in that. It's almost assured, actually, but at least you won't mm-hmm. feel terrible about it. If you go and you don't try and you fail, then you've really only got yourself to blame, and the hardest thing to forgive are the mistakes that you've made for yourself.
0: Amen, man. And I mean, you know, the other side of it, too, is like it's one. OK, so so we're sort of saying as artists, you know, it's it, we have to be committed to, to the work and we have to be committed to a certain standard of professionalism. But at the same time, I think as consumers, which we are, too, mm-hmm. um, it falls to us it's it, to embrace these kind of changes that are coming along yeah. where it's that are kind of knocking out these old systems. So in other words, you know, take it start exploring more independent, uh, options for your, whether it's your entertainment or for your, to, to bomb your soul. I mean, it's, it, it, look into the smaller presses, check out their work, look at the people who are publishing independently, you know, be, be, uh, be more of an educated consumer and support this approach. Talk to or well, special order the books. If you, if you've got an independent, um, imprint that you like, special order their books from your bookstore to get them on the shelves, you know, encourage. It's like, you, you've got to be a little more proactive about yeah. it, I guess, but that's not such a bad thing. I mean, I don't know. I, it's, it's so unusual for when, when chain bookstores were still a force to be reckoned with. I could rarely walk into a chain bookstore and walk out with something in the, in those latter years. I mean, right. before I could walk in any bookstore and leave with an armload of stuff because I'm interested in so many different things. It mm-hmm. doesn't take much to sell me a book. But I don't see a lot of, um, I don't, I don't see a lot of variety. I see the same, you know, it it, it falls to the consumer. The the consumer has to demand these new materials of their establishment venues. And I think that's a huge thing. I mean, I'm always, that's why we started doing, you mentioned about working with used bookstores. We would always try to do our events at used bookstores. Why? Because I'm a bookstore guy. Used bookstores is where I spent most of my time. I felt like they had, that attracted a a type of loyalty and a different kind of customer mm-hmm. than a big bookstore. It's a also deeper a bench of talent.
1: A much deeper bench of talent.
0: Yeah, and and a, and a big bookstore didn't really need us. They didn't really care enough about us. But like with a with a used bookstore, to, if I went into it to a new bookstore, if I went into say a Borders, just to pull them out of a hat. You know, go in and say, look, we're going to make you a really good deal on the any books you sell. You're going to get to keep a large portion of the profits, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's not that appealing to a to a big chain bookstore unless they're, they've are they got a really forward-thinking manager. Um, but whereas a smaller bookstore looks at that and they say, hey, you know, they sell five books. We're getting a nice piece of the book. I mean, that's, that's better than we might sell without them. Right. And all we're really asking for is, is the space, yep. you know, and we're going to bring people to your store. So, and even then, it was, it was tough. Yep. To you're do. shooting it was, that event, a, a, you're like sharing people. that
1: material, that, that gives you an extra press bump, which gives everybody a better feeling about it, which puts that bookstore on the map with, with a demographic that mm-hmm. maybe didn't know them before, so that if there's people that are following New Texture and they see that there's a bookstore that's having a New Texture event, the next time they're in that city, they're going to visit that bookstore because they know – by the anointment that um, that it's a cool place. You know, what's that great line from Greece, if you can't be an athlete, be an athletic supporter? <laughs> <laughs> well, Wyatt, I want to thank you for coming on the show, and I want you to shout out some social media for everybody. So where can people find you online?
0: Uh, newtexture.com uh, is always the easiest place to find me. I'm on Facebook, uh, Newtexture on Twitter, uh, on Instagram, on
1: pretty much everywhere. <laughs> we're, not our, we're not our side. And That's N-E-W-T-E-X-T-U-R-E. That's correct. Correct. Well, hey, man, thanks for coming on. Um, always looking forward to the next thing that you're involved in and uh, definitely going to stay in touch.
0: Thank you, Maddie. You
1: too, man. Thank you. This has been Pod Sequentialism. I have been your host, Matt Kennedy. My guest has been Wyatt Doyle. Please check out newtexture.com and check out the New Texture social medias. Please also add us to your your social media um, wanderings with at podsec, P-O-D-S-E-Q. Also, you can follow the popsequentialism.com website. where We're offering up important contemporary uh, illustrated artwork from comics and uh, and some other stuff. So uh, stay in touch, follow us, and we'll talk to you next week. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism on the Meltdown Podcast Network, and I'm here to talk to you today about Gallery 30 South, which is a new fine art gallery exhibition space in Pasadena, California. It's on Wilson Avenue at 30 South Wilson, and the exhibitions range from really interesting, focused, figurative, narrative work to abstract expressionism, uh, installation art, and other very interesting things. The schedule thus far has included uh, Doss House and Francis Bean Cobain, and um, upcoming is Chuck D. of Public Enemy in his very first art exhibition, but uh, also emerging talent that have high-concept pieces like Diana Georgie's show on using Instagram words that were pejorative in a new context. So we're always doing something interesting over there, and you can kind of find out about it by following at Gallery30South and by going to Gallery30South.com. And again, that's three zero rather than writing out the word Gallery30South. Tell Matt Kennedy sent you.